As we begin our message, I would ask you if you would bow your heads and pray with me as we begin. Almighty God, the Father of all, the one who has nurtured us and cared over us and never taken, their, never taken your eye off of us, we come before you this morning and we seek to not take our eye off of you. But you call us here this morning to once again serve us, to once again remind us through your word and nourish us with this meal and the community that we experience. We gather this morning in your name. I pray that you would continue to mold us and shape us and teach us. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be truly pleasing in your sight, our God, our Redeemer, our Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when we started this series three weeks ago, we said that in order to better understand Job, we needed to understand this idea of perspectives. Because as people in 2019, we approach this ancient book with a perspective from 2019, and we need to understand that there are going to be some things that happen in this book that we don't quite understand because we don't have an ancient perspective. And so we need to seek to have an ancient perspective to better understand Job. And we also need to understand Job's perspective because he has a perspective that you and I do not have, being this ancient man. But as readers of this book, we have a perspective that Job doesn't have. We're given some insight into this story, into his predicament that Job himself is never given. So we understand some things that Job doesn't understand, but Job certainly sees things that we don't. So we want to try to fuller understand Job from all perspectives. We see Job's friends have a perspective on his predicament, and they're not shy about sharing their solution and their understanding of what's going on in his life. And then we also see that God has a perspective. We'll hear that perspective in a couple of weeks, and when he speaks, things are made much clearer. But that's a couple of weeks from now. Right now, we're going to turn back into Job's story. Right now, we turn into the chapters about 11 and four, through 11 through 14, where Job is still suffering under the emotional strain of losing his family, losing all of his children and everything that he has. And he's still suffering the physical pain of the sores that he has on his body. He's still sitting in this ash pit, scraping these sores with pottery and suffering that pain from these sores all over his body while continuing to suffer under the accusation of his friends. All the while, Job doesn't curse them, nor does he curse God. And my question is how? How does he maintain that perspective? How does he continue to not just tell his friends to get lost? I mean, if it were me, I would be yelling, nurse, nurse, get them out of my room. But Job doesn't do that. And never once does he try to take things into his own hands and solve his own predicament. He continues to cry out to God for renewal. How does he do that? I think we find out in today's text, even in the midst of this pain and suffering, Job is crying out to the one person that he knows that can truly make a difference now and forever. And so as we turn to today's text, we turn to chapter 11, and this time we meet his third friend, Zophar. We heard from Eliphaz last week, and in the interim, Bildad has spoken, and now Zophar, the third friend, is weighing in. They've listened to Job cry out, and they've listened to Job's words, and they're all fed up with what Job has to say. They're all unnerved by Job's candor. And every time he speaks, they've got a reply. And the whole time, Job doesn't dismiss them. 
he listens to what they have to say. But you can sort of sense in today's text, he's kind of losing patience with his friends. But he still listens to them. And Zophar, as well as the other two friends, have concluded Job's problem, as we heard last week, is because of Job. Because they have this karmic view of suffering. That good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Therefore, this bad thing that's happening to Job must be something that Job has done. And so they're trying to get Job to confess what it is that he's done. And they keep after him and they keep hounding him to admit that there's something that he's done. But see, we have that perspective from the beginning. We know that Job has done nothing. That there is one that's punishing him. It's not God, but there is the evil one that's behind all of this, but it's hidden from them. But that doesn't keep them from telling things the way they see him. So we see Zophar speak into his situation. Now, the interesting thing about all of his friends is that they speak truth. They say things that are true about God. Not everything they say is true, but some things they say are true. And Zophar says, who are you to plead your case before God? God himself is all knowledge and all power and all glory. How can you, a mortal man, plead yourself before God? But then he makes the misapplication of what he should then do as a result of that knowledge. That's where he gets into trouble. And we take up those words in chapter 11, starting with verse 13, where Zophar says to Job, so... If you devote your heart to him and stretch out your hands to him, meaning God, if you would just devote yourself to his teachings and raise your hands to, to God, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, if you'll just confess, confess, Job, you've done something. If you'll just put away that notion that you're innocent, that there's not something that you've done wrong, that you're hidden, you're hiding from all of us, if you'll just confess it to God and, and spend the rest of your life not going there, if you keep it out of your tent forever, then, then free of fault, you will lift up your face and you will stand firm without fear. If you do these things, then you will have hope. You will surely forget your trouble, recalling it only as water's gone by, Life will be brighter than noonday, and darkness will become like morning. You will be secure because there is hope. If you'll just do these things, Job, if you'll just confess that you've done something, God will forgive you, and God will restore all that you have. And when you look around you and see all that you then have, you can then have hope that God is faithful, that you have done what you have needed to do in order to be made right with God. And in fact, all of these things will cause you to forget this pain and suffering, the loss of your children, the loss of everything. You'll forget all of that because everything will be good again. Do you hear the, the shallowness in his answers? That if you do these things, God will do this. And when you have all these things, you'll forget all your troubles. You'll forget all your cares. I think there's a song that talks about that. That's all it takes, Job. This thing that you're going through is, is not really that bad. But you're the cause of it. And you have the answer. You can fix it. And just awful words to Job in the middle of his, of his pain and his suffering. 
And you can see Job starting to wear thin in Job's next response to his friends, because this is what he says in the beginning of 12. He says, doubtless you are the only people who matter, and wisdom will die with you. Can you hear the sarcasm dripping off his words? Surely you're the wisest person that's ever lived, and I feel sad for everybody on earth when you die, because wisdom will certainly die with you. And what will we do without your counsel? What will I do without your counsel? He's had it. He's, he's really reaching the end. He doesn't say go away, but he's trying to get their attention. And then he goes on to say something I think very insightful. He says, people who have an easy life look down on those who have problems. They think trouble comes only to those whose feet are slipping. It's easy for those that, whose life seems to be good right now to look down upon those who are suffering, who are in the midst of despair, and think that maybe it's of their own making. Maybe it's not as bad as they think it is. And they speak words into his life because they don't have his perspective. They don't understand what's going on. They're standing outside of this situation, trying to speak wisdom into the situation. Now, they might be speaking truth, but they're saying it at the wrong time and they're applying it in the wrong way. And it's not helpful because they don't really, they've never really taken time to understand what he's going through. We can take a page out of this book and learn how not to comfort those going through pain, going through suffering. Job goes on later to say, you would be better, you would be loving if you would just remain silent. That would be the most loving thing you could do for me. But even in the midst of all this, even in the midst of suffering, the physical and emotional pain and the psychological pain that his friends are bringing upon him, he still refuses to curse God because he has this understanding of who God is. He says in chapter 12, to God belong wisdom and power, counsel and understanding are his. They are his alone. I will not listen to you, I will listen to God because he alone has wisdom. He alone has the power to change this situation. That doesn't, that doesn't reside in me. It only resides in God. He alone is who I will cry to because he alone is the one that can renew all things. He is the only one that can take this affliction from me. Job recognizes the power of God even in the midst of his pain and suffering. He still doesn't say things clearly. He still doesn't understand clearly because we hear him say later in chapter 13, he says, though God slay me, yet will I hope in him. See, Job doesn't have our perspective. He doesn't see that it's not God that slayed him, that it's Satan that has afflicted him and taken these things from him. But even though Job has a misunderstanding of his situation, he doesn't misunderstand the power and goodness of God something in him that still knows that God is still God and that he is not. And we see that that knowledge of God is sustaining him. The knowledge that God alone has the power to remove this affliction from him, the one that can truly bring renewal is God. It doesn't reside in him doing good. It resides in God and God alone. And he, he confesses that here. And then we see something else in Job that I think is insightful as to why he has this perspective, why he understands that, because Job has hope. And it's not the hope in the things of, of this world. It's not his status. It's not his 
possessions that provide Job hope. It's not his health that give him hope. What gives him hope is God and his perspective of God. Job says this in 14. He says, talking about man, so man lies down and does not rise till the heavens are no more. People will not awake or be roused from their sleep. All men die. All men go to the grave. And all men are no more and will not rise until they're roused from their sleep, until God rouses them. Job has this eternal picture, this picture of resurrection. Where he's given that, we don't know. But we do know here in these words, Job knows that there's a day that's coming where everything will be made new. And it is God that will do that. He will wake everyone who has died. And God is at work doing that. But not just then. Job says now. Because he goes on to say, if someone dies, will they live again? Yes. All the days of my hard service, I will wait for renewal to come. Job's saying in the now. He's crying out to God because he knows now God can renew his situation. God can make things new again now. Job has an eternal perspective of God and his situation. And it's that eternal perspective that gives Job hope, that allows him to persevere under the pain and suffering of his affliction, the loss, and his friends. Because he has an eternal picture of God and his circumstances. Solomon tells us this in Ecclesiastes 3.11, that God is making all things beautiful in its time and that he's placed eternity in the heart of men. That's what we see in Job. That's what we understand. That's what mankind understands. That's why we ask that question, is this all there is? This can't be all there is. There has to be more than this. Remember in Experiencing God, if you were with us at the beginning of that series, we asked this question, does life have a purpose? And we answered it this way. We said, apart from God, life has no purpose. Apart from him, there is no meaning. Apart from God, this life doesn't matter. If God does not exist, and this universe comes to exist at a certain point, and at a certain point in the future, it will cease to exist, we know that the universe will grow cold, will cease to exist, everything will die out, and at that point, nothing will exist. And if it, that's it, at the end, what difference does it make if anything ever came into existence or not, when in the end, nothing exists? It's as though nothing ever did exist, which means life doesn't have purpose, which means suffering doesn't have purpose, which means anything in this life is without purpose and meaning if God does not exist. But God does exist. And because God does exist, life has meaning. Life has purpose. Because this life is not all there is. Because life does go on into eternity because God exists. Not only does this life make sense and have purpose, but our pain and suffering, we're told, has a purpose. And it only makes sense within the framework 
of eternity. We cannot seek to understand the eternal from the temporary perspective. It's only the eternal that gives proper and full meaning to the temporary, to the current. It's only God that will make things new again. Job cries out for renewal because he knows that, that God is capable of that. He has an eternal perspective. This word renewal, I love this definition. It says, an instance of resuming an activity or state after an interruption. Think of it like this. That dash between Genesis 3 and Revelation 22 is the interruption. The relationship that God had with himself from all time, he brought mankind into that relationship, a right relationship with him, a relationship without sin, without separation. And then we read in Genesis 3 that man decided he knew better and sinned against God, and therefore there was an interruption to the relationship. And that interruption continues until Revelation 22, where we're told that God will make all things new. And that relationship will once again be as it should be, that he will be our God and we will be his people and we will see him exactly as he is, exactly as Adam and Eve saw him. And we will experience life as it was meant to be lived. But this time in between is the interruption. It's that interruption of that perfect relationship that God seeks to heal, that God seeks to renew. Not just then, but now. He is making all things new, but in a sense, he's already made all things new now through the sacrifice of his son. Not through anything that we've done, not through our understanding, but by the mercy and grace of God. He's making all things new now. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says, though outwardly we are wasting away, and is that not true? We are wasting away. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. See, we fix our eyes on this world and we try to make of this world what it was never meant to be. Have you ever had this experience where you're out on a date or maybe you're with that person that you've had this connection with and you stay up all night just talking nonsense, but you're just willing to stay up all night because you don't want the night to end. You just don't want it to end. But it does. And it always does. Because babies don't stay babies forever, right? And you can't stay 21 forever, regardless of what the fashion industry tells you or the plastic surgeons tell you. And when you try, it's creepy. It just doesn't work. <laughs> See, when we try to hold on to things that are never meant to sustain us, that we are trying to hold on to the good in this life, we forget this life is but temporary. We forget that this life is not the good life. We forget that there's an eternity and there's a life yet to come that will be the best life ever. And we can get a picture of that now. Paul talks about that. Job understood that. That God in the right now 
in the temporary is working to renew all things right now. Not just then, but a time is coming where he will make all things new. As we read in Revelation 21, John's words, as he has this vision, John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Job knew that God would make all things new, that God alone could make all things new. Job had an eternal perspective. And so it's to God that Job cries out. He cries out to, Job, to God now in the midst of his pain, seeking to be healed of his pain now because his pain is real. It's debilitating. And he cries out to the one person who can heal him of that. But at the same time, he knows that even if he die, that he will see his Savior again, that he will see his God again, and that God will not count his sins against him because God is continually working. He is the God of renewal. He is the God who is trustworthy. He is the God who is true. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I told, introduced you to a friend of mine, Scott Thomas. You know, he's the pastor that used to be here at seven years ago, died from his four-month cancer battle with cancer. And I said at that time, I think sometimes it's hard to understand Job because he's this ancient guy, and it's hard to empathize with Job, but Scott is more of a modern figure, somebody that actually, in the midst of pain and suffering, in the midst of dying from cancer, shared with us the same view. And my prayer is, as Scott's was, that you would be encouraged by his words, that you could see the truth about the eternal one, the eternity of God. And so this morning, I want to share to you this morning a section from his blog, and I thought I would put his picture up this weekend for those of you that don't know him or didn't know him, that maybe you could put a face with the name. And I want to share to you from an entry in his blog dated January the 2nd, 2012, as we finish the message. It's on candor. He says, I believe as I set out to journal this experience, the one thing I promised was that I would do so with candor. My obligation as a communicator is to be honest. Early on in this process, candor was easy and upbeat. It was the beginning of the fight. I had all my wits about me. There was a momentum to go to battle, regardless of the medical prognosis. Of course, I stood strong in my faith, surrounded, bolstered, and energized by the prayers of my family, friends, fellow believers, and even loving skeptics. To be candid, it was, it's been fairly easy to write with candor because it's been influenced by so much good in my life. Now, one week into the round two of chemotherapy, I fear that the tone of my candor is slipping. While I will write with no less honesty or integrity, I cannot help but share the disappointments I'm experiencing too. 
So, dear ones, I'm concerned that at least for some, these posts will take you outside of your comfort zone. So I apologize in all candor, that is how we grow in faith and life and experience, by allowing ourselves to experience things outside of our comfort zone. As you know, I have been praying for miraculous healing. To be clear, all healing is miraculous, so I'm not praying for anything beyond what God promises to all believers. To be sure, I'm asking God to heal me now in, the, in that way that will leave no doubt to who is causing the healing. Honestly, that is the result I pray for most, that at the end of this journey, this battle, this temporary set of circumstances, that your faith be strengthened, that your relationship with God be solidified. I also, though in all candor, may confess that I am already growing weary of the fight. I'm growing old in the pain. I'm looking for mercy in a time of evil, and I can think of no greater gift of mercy than to be healed. I'm praying for a miracle, because according to the doctors, that's the only way I will be healed in this life. This isn't some 30-70 medical proposition. It's a God heals or doesn't at this moment proposition. It's the only possibility. So why would I pray any other way? If the only way I can be healed of this stage four carcinoma is via a miracle, then I refuse to put God in any smaller role than that of healer, complete healer. As I've confessed before, I know I'm already healed. Nothing changes that. Please understand that I know that regardless of how this chapter in my life turns out, I am healed. Don't let my candor in these current circumstances lead you to believe I have any less faith or any greater doubt in the power of God above all these things. Scott confesses in the middle of his pain that it's debilitating, and he cries out to the one person he knows that can change those things, that even if God does not change his circumstances, he trusts that God is working. He, like Job today, have experienced that healing. They are in pain no more. They understand what true life is. They have a perspective that you and I lack. But we can gain strength from their perspective as they went through pain and suffering. We too can learn to cry out to God in the midst of suffering. Cry out to him for renewal now because he loves us and he cares for us. Jesus Christ is the witness to that love. And so my prayer for all of you this morning is that as you walk with those who are going through a time of trouble, who are agonizing in pain, who are facing their death, that you would encourage them, that you would encourage them with Job's words, that God is still at work. God is not the author of this pain, but he is the God of renewal. And one day we will all celebrate that new life together. I pray that Job's words would strengthen you and encourage you in this time, in this temporary time. For Jesus' sake, amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you. With all candor, we thank you for the mercy that you showed Job, for the mercy and healing that you provided Scott, for your continued work in the lives of those here today. We thank you for the work in the lives of those that have passed that we continue to mourn whose lives we won't forget. But Father, your word reminds us that you've never taken your eye off of us, that you are always at work. You have always been at work. 
Father, we confess to you this morning that we do take our eyes off of this eternal picture, that we get so focused on this life, so focused on our current situation, that we forget your plan, we forget your will. Father, we confess to you those sins, those times where we can see no one else but ourselves. But your word reminds us at the very same time that those sins have been forgiven, that we stand healed, that we are being renewed each and every day, that every day you call us to remember your son, a call to remember the eternal one, and that this life does matter, this life is precious. Father, we thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for those that are walking through it right now in the trials of life. We'd ask you to strengthen us so that we could be an encouragement to them. We ask you to give us that eternal perspective in all things. Father, we give you glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.